0: Hi, I'm Daryl Etherington, host of Found, you know, TechCrunch's podcast where we talk about a different founder every week. And guess what? I have a co-host, the quit to my genius. Wait. Wow. <laughs> the other way around. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, because you're an always quit, so I'm the genius. <laughs> yeah,
1: you always quit. I'm, I'm sure. not a genius. Neither That's of right. us really deserve right. genius. No. But
0: yeah, no. I'm here. Whatever. I'm here. Doing my best. Great. I'm glad you're here. This week, I just put the joke as the, actually, as the name of the company. That's the first time I've done that. It's a record. The company this week is Quick Genius. And the founder is Yusuf Shirani, who is also a medical doctor, which... I didn't learn on the show, but I forgotten and then he reminded us in the show and then I was like,
1: Oh yeah, that's so cool. You relearned on the
0: show. I relearned on the show. Yes. Thank God
1: you're not the doctor, right? I would hate to have you relearning things while you were performing procedures on me or something.
0: Like if I forgot I was a doctor, you mean and then
1: No, like if you forgot like what <laughs> the name of my disease
0: was or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that sounds like actually a pretty good pitch for like a for like a medical drama on TV, like an hour long CBS show or something. but uh, Forgetful doctor. Yeah. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Uh, anyways, our show <laughs> this week <laughs> is all about Yusuf and how he started Quit Genius and why he did it and how the company operates and why the company operates the way it does. And we get really into a lot of the theory around kind of like remote care, virtual care, and also accessibility to care and accessibility to treatments for quitting substance addiction, including cognitive behavioral therapy treatments, CBT, which were not generally available. Like the people who are trained in the proper practitioning of that, where they are located didn't necessarily line up with where those problems are most severe. So that's one of the reasons Quit Genius came into being. And I think it's something that Yusuf explained really well so i you know you don't have to hear it from me you know don't, don't listen to me and my stumbling terrible speak listen to you yeah we
1: can go ahead and edit this out let's just skip to the uh yeah to the episode yeah
0: we'll get into it hi yusuf how's it going not
2: bad i'm well thanks daryl how are you
0: Good, good. Great to have you here. Really excited to hear more about your company, Quit Genius, and a little bit about, you know, your your journey in starting that. But do you want to give us just kind of a TLDR or a uh, high-level overview of what Quit Genius is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Quit Genius is the leading digital clinic for substance addictions. So we help individuals conquer their addictions and in doing so help payers reduce some of the costs associated with actually treating those addictions if they spiral um, out of control. You know, high level, how we do it is through a combination of telehealth, connected devices, access to digital cognitive behavioral therapy and medication management. So it's really a holistic clinic, the type you would expect to experience if you visited a clinic in person, but delivered entirely digitally on your own terms.
0: When you started, this was probably, what, four years ago? Is that right? Do I have it right?
2: Exactly. Four and a half years yeah. ago. I think Jordan covered our YC launch set. So. Pretty ideal. Oh, nice. Yeah.
1: yeah, I've covered a couple of things, right? A couple of raises and stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. That wifey launch, I'll see series A, yeah. Definitely being part of the journey. Cool. We
0: now at TechCrunch, we see a fair amount of like digital therapy companies coming through and digital therapy startups coming through. But I think at the time, it was like a relatively new, t- I mean, it's still a relatively new term, but it was probably something not many people had heard of. So what kind of like got you started in this as a vector for the delivery of, of specifically uh, quitting assistance and, and cessation aids and things like that.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question uh, to be honest. Because back then, digital health definitely wasn't as sexy as it is now, and you know we right. had real challenges starting out. I mean, you know we were first-time founders, of course, but. Just raising our first check, getting investor interest, um, getting people excited about the fact that hey, we want to help people quit smoking, and then eventually we want to move over to you know alcohol um, and alcohol use disorder, and you know the opioid epidemic. It just wasn't like a fun place to be. Digital health was often where you would you know see incredibly low long sales cycles. Death by pilots mm-hmm. was you know a common refrain. So the question was like, can you really monetize something like this in the long term? Um, was a real question that we had. I definitely say that, you know, it's been a real journey building the business over the last few years. COVID in many ways um, has been a tailwind to the business, not just because, um, you know, we saw a tremendous increase in the prevalence of substance addiction. So, you know, it turned out that a combination of the fear and the anxiety and the isolation that people faced over the last 18 months led to some of the most rapid acceleration that we've actually seen for substance use disorders broadly across the spectrum. But in addition to that, there's also just a widespread acceptance that virtual care is a very real option. So it turned from being a nice to have, which is what it was before, where you really had to educate, you know, your customers in the market that virtual can be just as effective as, um, you know, in person treatment, to suddenly being uh, a must have overnight, almost like a critical piece of infrastructure that, you know, healthcare system can't survive with um without so I think early days were sort of set, set us up for long term success, but also initially helps us overcome some of the sort of potential cynicism of the model was really focusing on building a clinical evidence base, showing that people were willing to accept this. And actually, um, the outcomes would be just as good, if not better, by having somebody go through a virtual care program as they would be for somebody going um, you know, through an in-person program. So I think that was the very first litmus test. And frankly, we spent the first couple of years just really focusing on proving you know, great outcomes and a great member experience and the fact that this could actually help people overcome their addiction much in the same way that seeing a therapist in real life would be able to do the same.
1: Can you talk a little bit, Yusuf, about like how cognitive behavioral therapy comes into play as part of it, right? Because Quit Genius is pretty much built on that. And it's been around for decades, but really seems to be picking up steam lately. You know, where where did it come into play for you guys when you were thinking, okay, we do have to prove the clinical outcomes of this. And then why do you think it's having kind of such a big momentum swing in the past five or so years versus other forms of therapy?
2: Yeah, I I think that's a Great question. And in many ways, it goes into the reasons that we had for founding Quit Genius in the first place. So by background, you know, I'm a medical doctor and Quit Genius was really an idea that sort of came about during medical school. My co-founders and I, we went to medical school together. And one of the things we saw through you know personal experiences that i had within my own family where i saw people struggling with an addiction was the recognition that for some reason more than 92 percent of people with an addiction today never get access to evidence-based treatment so we have these therapies mm. that exist in the real world things like cognitive behavioral therapy and medication management but also almost nobody's actually using that in the first place and that was really interesting for us because i was seeing this sort of personally that way you know taught this version of healthcare in medical school that you're supposed to be very holistic, you're supposed to help people with the psychological component as well as the physical component of whatever you know situation they're managing. But you know, in actual fact we do very little of that. Um, and instead you take a band-aid approach. And I think the reason for that is, despite CBT being incredibly effective, the challenge is access, and it's about being able to standardize a high quality of care. So first of all, there often aren't enough providers, but more importantly, they're not having enough providers. Those providers aren't in the same locality as people that actually have an addiction in the first place. And you see this when you look at the headlines, where there's a really, you know, a really big rural problem when it applies to an addiction. So you know, all the providers are typically, and this is no simplification, but all the providers are in big. Cities, people in rural areas just don't get access to evidence-based treatment, and as a result, there's a mismatch of you know supply and demand, um, and that felt like something that technology could solve. In addition to that. There's no real way to standardise care, so today it's a cottage industry. Everybody delivers a slightly different flavour of CBT, and there's no tools that really enable us to see what's effectively working for one provider that we can potentially apply to another provider. So we felt that both of those things could actually be solved super effectively using technology. Um, but it really comes down to rethinking how these traditional tools could be made more effective, you know, for the 21st century. So you know, we we, we know CBT is incredibly effective in the real world, but can we? Re- reimagine it in a way that it doesn't have to be a one hour consultation with a therapist once a week but it can be a few minutes every day and you know it could be delivered through you know multiple different modalities so it could be delivered over text it could be delivered over voice and video at the same time in a way that suits that specific individual I think that's like broadly speaking the challenge of why it hasn't sort of been as widely available as it has before, but how technology can solve some of those challenges.
0: For you in those early days, what was your method for convincing people, like this is an effective method and we can show you that it is, and were the conversations with VCs in particular difficult around that? And how did you kind of overcome that?
2: Yeah, I I think it's actually sort of, there's, there's two problems that we were facing early on. So one was convincing customers And that is to say, payers specifically, who we were selling to, that virtual care is a very real way to solve an old problem. So, you know, if you come to Mm -hmm. them and you say, hey, we can help solve all your addiction challenges, that sounds great. In many ways, it sounds almost too good to be true because these are, you know, really deep systemic issues in society. And we're not saying we can solve everything. There's social determinants of health, there's so many different factors, but we can certainly make, you know, a big dent in that. But it requires us to, Really, present the data on how our virtual care model um is going to be effective for their population, so you know what we found to be effective for, for for those customers was just data, clinical data, we went all out and we did a randomized control trial, which is typically you know what you would have a drug um, or a vaccine. You know, as we've had COVID, you know, vaccines go through that process. So you're really assessing within a population. If you're given sort of face-to-face therapy um, and virtual care, that is quick genius, um, you know, we were finding quick genius to be much more effective even than face-to-face therapy because you could get it on your own terms. It's faster. You can get real-time feedback. You can get a whole host of tools around you. So we found the data piece was very effective. Then we went to VCs. And they couldn't understand why we were spending so much on clinical research. So early on in our customer's life cycle, before we were even generating any revenue. I mean, that's, again, an oversimplification. So I'd say VCs Mm -hmm. fell into two counts. There were the VCs that ultimately did invest in us that saw the value in that because they knew healthcare and health tech and digital health was a little bit different and you want to take you know, a much more nuanced approach and you want to make sure what you're putting in front of members um, is going to be effective. Um, But then there was the more sort of tech enabled VCs where they were like, you know, you just need to go to market, you just need to sell it. You can sort of figure it out and build it as you're selling it. And it just showed a mismatch in expectations for something that is fundamentally helping, you know, or profoundly affecting people's lives. And you need to go to those discussions with a lot of validated data behind it. So we found that very challenging. Ultimately, it it is a chicken and the egg situation. And we're able to raise enough capital um, and, you know, be resourceful enough to do those clinical studies on, on a shoestring budget. And then you know, enable that to then go to payers, get adoption um, and get that ball rolling.
0: For you as a person coming from a medical background, were you expecting that tech perspective, or did you kind of assume people would understand the importance of doing that research first, even even if they were relatively naive in the subject matter? Or like was it to you like shocking to hear people be like, just just
2: keep going, just get it out there, <laughs> just like see how it goes? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it definitely was quite surprising. I think you, you you need to learn to speak the language. So I think you know, pe- perhaps the, the, the failing was more in the way we presented that and laying out a clear vision for how this piece of clinical research actually has a very hard ROI and is table stakes, but not just table stakes is like, you know, a moat around the business. So that's defensible. It's something that when you have a randomized control trial, it doesn't matter, you know, matter how much capital you have, it just takes a certain amount of time, as we've seen to get that approved and, you know, to get all the data surrounding that. So I think yeah, it, it was a bit of a, you know, a, a shock to the system. Uh, we have to figure out how to convey it in language, you know, terms that made sense uh, to the people that would invest in the business. Ultimately, we got a great set of investors that actually understood the value in that and oftentimes had already seen that sort of play out in other areas as well. So there are a lot more understanding and, um, you know, warm to the idea. I
0: also wanted to talk about just from reading your own writing about it, like you, you had this hypothesis that like the naive founder is good, right? Like it has, has potential to be more successful than one who is perhaps more knowledgeable about the ways things work or are supposed to work. Right. And you also talked about like how, you know, you you sympathize or empathize with the perspective that like as a founder now looking back, like you wouldn't necessarily want to go do it again, knowing what you know now about how difficult it is. I'm wondering, like, how much is that true for you? Like, if you're looking back and thinking like, oh, my goodness, like the challenges for me were immense compared to what I had expected they were to- going to be like, especially for other founders who are maybe in a similar position, like how do you kind of immure yourself against that? Or, or is it bad to and should you just go in with a kind of naive perspective? Because it's better to not know what's coming for you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think that's definitely one of those um, articles that's probably the conclusion of too much introspection and and reflection uh, in many ways. (laughs) Um, But I I, I think that actually um, there's a lot of truth to that, which is oftentimes, particularly first-time founders, You sort of jump into things without truly knowing all the implications of that. And I know for sure that we had no idea how challenging it would be to, you know, create a digital health business that's focused on an enterprise sales go-to-market. So, you know, our naive approach was, hey... CBT is incredibly effective in the real world. Medication management is really incredibly, you know, effective in the real world. These things aren't available to actual patients. Why don't we just build a product that makes this available? And then it's going to be simple. Everybody's going to want to buy it. And you know, the reality was just so far from that. We realized that you know we need to raise money. People aren't necessarily willing to invest in a company that doesn't have real traction, so you've also got to do the clinical research on top of that, so you're doing sort of the clinical research, you're building the product, you're talking to customers, you know you're signing customers and then you start to realize that there's this entire other world when it comes to you know regulations and you know what you're allowed to do right. and in which states you're allowed to do it. And unfortunately, the system that exists today just didn't contemplate telehealth, so the way we think about licensing medical professionals you know across multiple states, and this has been you know um covered before in the past, just didn't contemplate the fact that providers um will one day be able to just jump on a call or jump on a video consultation with somebody that might be a thousand miles apart. And the fundamental biology of that individual in California isn't going to be any different to somebody in New York or you know somebody in Chicago. But the complexity that exists from an operation standpoint in actually getting folks licensed, both on the counseling side as well as the physician, um, you know, medical side, um, is just enormous. And maintaining that licensing maintaining compliance across states, so it's this enormous overhead that you know unfortunately exists today. And I think that those were the types of more pragmatic challenges that we just didn't contemplate early on. Um, And frankly, you're right. Like, Mm. you know, I said in the article, if, you know, if we knew, um, if if somebody came to us and said, okay, here's the 50 things you haven't thought about with your idea, I probably would have said, you know what, let me try thinking about something a bit simple that I, I can actually do as my first company. But... I mean, like any problem, if you just break it down to its constituent parts, you know, one at a time, problem solve them, then that progress compounds over time and you can actually make great progress and actually build something that's truly novel. So, you know, in hindsight, it wouldn't change anything, but it definitely was a big wake up call as We started to face some of these challenges. If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in
0: startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're gonna offer you 50% off, either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to ExtraCrunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for ExtraCrunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe. And then just enter that code that's found. The name of this podcast during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. What was kind of the impetus to even tackle this kind of problem to begin with? Obviously, it has tremendous impact and that would seem to be a driver, but what was the personal reason you wanted to pursue solving this challenge?
2: Yeah, so I mean, going back a few steps actually, in many ways I didn't actually expect to find myself in medical school in the first place, so I had a pretty conventional Sort of childhood for somebody that's now working in tech so i grew up coding you know loved computers um self-taught programmer in my early teens started my first business actually at the age of 14 and then i sold that by chance a couple of years later so in many ways i i, I saw myself you know just going down i mean i sort of grew up reading TechCrunch actually um and remember the mike harrington days and you know was, was always inspired to, to build my you know to, to build my own company eventually but Maybe through, you know, my actual upbringing and sort of the values that my parents gave to me, I also found it somewhat difficult to reconcile how I could do that with, you know, achieving something that was actually beneficial to society. And you know, my my, my mother was a doctor, so you yeah, know, they really drummed into me that like idea of like service to something that's bigger than you know yourself. And I always thought of technology uh, of technology as being this totally separate thing to working on something that's actually meaningful that could mm-hmm. have you know positive impact on people. And in many ways I think that's quite interesting because there has been this growing skepticism we've seen of technology in the last sort of decade or so. So so I ended up going to medical school mainly because I felt that, okay, I can teach myself the code and I can maintain that interest, but I can't teach myself to be a doctor. And you probably don't want to go to a self-taught doctor. So that's not, you know, going to be something that actually ends well. And then during medical school, I had a close family member go through an addiction challenge. And and actually that close family member ended up passing away and it was likely linked to the, the challenge they had. And that started you know, getting me thinking, actually, like, why are we you know, treating chronic conditions? Why are we treating um, stigmatized issues in the way we are when we know that there are very valid therapies that exist in the real world? And in the early days of Quit Genius, it actually wasn't a startup. We created it as a proof of concept, and we actually published our findings in a paper and presented it at an academic conference, and we're like, you know, we said, here's a proof of concept, here's what people should take forward, Somebody should go out and build this thing, and then we sort of realized that actually nobody's going to do that. And in the academic world, it'll probably sit on a dusty shelf, and we'll just ha- go and have, you know, a clinical career as you know as a doctor should. And that's where we went through that, I guess, um, you know, process of you know recognizing that actually, if we really want to have meaningful impact and be able to scale that impact to millions of people, being able to marry the technology world with evidence-based medicine. Um, and stay grounded with one foot in either domain is probably the more meaningful thing. And, and, you know, through that, we actually became a lot more passionate about mission-driven technology. It's about doing something that goes beyond just your specific customers or your employees or your investors, but has sort of lasting positive impact on people. It's not hard to turn tech
0: to the purpose of social impact. And I think there's plenty of opportunities like yours where it's just there and it's a matter of connecting the components that are there and also having grit to go through the stuff like the regulation stuff like you mentioned right but like i just i find it funny that not as many founders look in that direction but maybe you're you get at it by talking about how like you used to think of them as sort of isolated things but how do you think about that now or do you think about that now like is there a way to encourage more founders to consider that aspect of the business and and what's your advice i guess there
2: yeah, I think that's a great question, and I, I do spend a bit of time thinking about it. And I actually do fundamentally believe that more and more people are going into technology to be mission driven, and they want to make mission, you know, the core of what they do. So they have a worldview, you know, of things, and whether it's climate or healthcare or other societal challenges we face, like people really want to make that central to their, you know, fundamental company and tie it to their actual business model Um, and i think that's great and i actually also fundamentally think that mission-driven companies are just much more likely to be successful because Today the real challenge that every company faces we really face is just um you know hiring very very talented people. So startups are incredibly hard. They take a very long time, they very they they take a very consistently intense effort and without some sort of shared sense of mission through the downs um to really drive people it's just very easy for people to potentially give up and you know being mission driven is really our number one recruiting line that that we use for people. So I do think that talented people do want to work on something generally that has a beneficial impact on society and being able to actually, you know, say that this is aligned to the business model of our organization and every line of code that you write, every deal that you close, every client that you make happy through the account management team, that's going to lead to some measurable overall impact It's incredibly powerful. And we're seeing more of that actually happen. And I talk more and more to founders who are thinking about that from the very earliest of stages, which I think is really nice. And, you know, starts to show how tech can, you know, not sort of become that parallel track with, you know, working on something purposeful. But actually, there's ways for this to merge over time.
0: It's great to think of it as pipeline now requires this as a component, right? Then it's like, even if maybe your idea wasn't that to begin with or doesn't necessarily have a mission aspect, you have to build a real one in in order to compete in the marketplace for talent right which is actually a great message that, and and not one I've heard sort of like talked about that much uh, in in tech world
2: yeah and I think people have become quite sensitive and 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 can immediately detect those who play like lip service to the idea so like you said it's become a bit of a cliche that every startup wants to make the world a better place but like how <laughs> and um, yeah then it sort of ends over there so so I do actually think that we're somewhat past that phase and the ones that truly want to do it, they're, they're able to articulate that from the earliest days and they're very consistent in that messaging.
1: Can you talk to us about like when you decided to add other kind of like verticals to quit genius? Cause I know you guys started with just tobacco and you know, you hear founders say all the time, like, Oh, we just, we thought we were going to do 20 things. And then we realized we have to do one thing really, really well before we move on to thing number two and thing number three. So like, can you talk to us about that inflection point for Quit genius and when you realize like, okay, we have what we need on this smoking cessation product. Like now we can move on to this and kind of how you ordered it and prioritized it. Like, I think that's a tricky thing for a lot of founders.
2: In a way, from the start, we, we did know that we wanted to be in multiple addictions, but we also knew that we couldn't do that from the start. And because, you know, just digital health just wasn't accepted at the time, we needed to focus on one thing, really do it well and prove the model work. And then add to that over time, and that's why we started with tobacco. Um, And we chose tobacco simply because it was the least regulated. So you know we could use quick coaches that didn't need to be licensed in specific states that could be broadly utilized across any state. And because smoking is seen as more of a wellness issue, um, there wouldn't be any risk of you know requiring requiring qualified medical professionals or medical device licensing to be able to launch a program in the first place. But Yeah, fundamentally, all addictions are the same. They have the physical component and the psychological component. So we felt a fairly high level of conviction that if we were successful with smoking, we could, with some adaptations to the underlying platform, apply it in other um, areas as well. We're pretty intentional in the other areas that we started to consider. So this was about, um, you know, eighteen months ago, as just before COVID. In fact, we, you know, w- we'd found that we'd done the RCT. It was very successful. We we're starting to get real commercial traction and um, scaling the, you know, the the tobacco program to commercial clients. So then, you know, came the question of what's next. And what we identified actually was that. About you know 70% of people who drink um, heavily are also smoking, um, and then oftentimes you know they're comorbid. So we you know we found from our own data that we weren't as successful at helping people um, quit smoking who were also drinking really heavily because the underlying disorder wasn't actually being treated. And this goes to one of the challenges in healthcare today, which is you know unfortunately things are very siloed. So there's a different program that's available to you if you're a smoker, but you know, if you drink too much then you have a different program and um, you know, maybe you'll have an EAP or some kind of health plan resource that's available to you if you, you know, have an opioid use disorder. But the reality is, humans are just really complicated beings. And um, our data typically shows that more than one third of people that have one addiction are likely to also have another addiction. And they, by and large, cost the most to actually treat within a population. So you actually need a program that can really um, cross the continuum of um, addiction care across multiple addictions to have a fighting chance and actually helping some of the most affected people. And so that's where it became pretty clear that um, for us to do a really good job in tobacco use, we would also need to have a program across the most prevalent and expensive other addiction verticals. But we also wanted to remain focused. So, you know, we don't necessarily want to go out there and launch sort of a weight loss program next year or a musculoskeletal program, all in the name of having this really holistic, comprehensive solution. We've recognized that actually substance use disorders are yeah, you know, some of the most challenging things we face—they're all very interlinked—and it makes sense to have one overall umbrella program um, that, irrespective of the individual addiction or combination of addictions, can be highly personalized towards helping that person in a really dynamic way. So it's just you know, it feels like something that was built for them personally.
1: What about like the switch over to enterprise? Because you talked about this a little bit early on in our conversation, but. It feels like a difficult jump to make, not just like as a business organizationally and operationally, but it also feels like a difficult sell, right? Like to get that first customer on board, because you're essentially saying like, they're probably addicts in your workforce, which I don't think any employer really wants to hear. And then on top of it, it's like, oh, and we're not going to play who they are. You need to provide a benefit that's going to cost you money to help them, right? It's just like a difficult one.
2: You're you're totally correct. It was incredibly challenging, and I I guess, like you know, to the point of naivety early on. You know, we didn't really think through the business model and the reimbursement model when we set out to build uh, Quit Genius. So we said, hey, you know, we'll build a great product, we'll build an excellent member experience, and someone will probably pay for it. Maybe the user will pay for it, and you know, we'll just sort of figure that out on the back end. And yeah, that in hindsight, just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, so what we found early on is, you know, we tried a direct consumer model, and we were getting incredible engagement, we we're having really successful outcomes. But we just found people weren't willing to pay for it. Like we were reaching the ceiling when we were trying to scale the consumer business. And we were sort of delving a bit deeper into that and every time we went a bit deeper you know we'd find that people would say well i'm usually used to you know somebody else covering the cost of my health care and you you know into my insurance planning could i use my hsa for this or you know those types of questions so um we weren't set up for any of that early on um and that required really rethinking the entire reimbursement model so we found that you know the product by and large was actually very very successful it was very sort of sticky but people had a ceiling on what they would pay for a digital program that was typically, you know, in the realms of, uh, you know, meditation app or a wellness app. But the true cost of actually delivering the quick genius program was substantially higher than that. And then, you know, enterprise made a lot of sense, because the thinking was, well, who benefits when you get somebody to, you know, overcome and conquer their addiction, whether it's a tobacco, alcohol, opioid addiction, and by and large, it's both the individual but it's also the payer and um, so the payer stands to gain substantial amount in healthcare cost savings if you're able to actually you know, help them um, sustainably overcome their addiction because there are so many downstream consequences that um, you know, you're you're actually avoiding. Getting payers to pay attention, particularly employers early day, you're right, was incredibly successful. There are questions of am I at potential liability because I'm offering this program and then what if something happens or an incident happened and we've had incidents before in the past. Um, but I do think actually generally speaking, employers are some of the most forward thinking people when it comes to health benefits. So that really helped us. And um, you know, help to build the initial momentum. I think the biggest thing that built initial momentum was actually just being value-based. So we were pretty aggressive right out of the door because we had the clinical data to back it up saying, hey, we're going to put 50% of our fees off the bat at risk. And if we don't achieve these clinical outcomes, that's going to correspond to an ROI in your population. You don't have to pay us half the fees. And that was kind of scary to start off with because it was like, hey, these targets are pretty aggressive do we think we can reach them we had a high level of confidence we could because we'd done the clinical research to back that up um and we've you know we've never had to actually act on those performance guarantees before in the past but that instantly grabbed their attention because it was hey we're so used to paying for things on a per employee basis or on a fee-for-service basis but if you're truly able to put your you know, money where your mouth is, then maybe this is something we can try out with a pilot. You get that first successful case study. And then like any enterprise sales you know, process, it just comes down to operationalizing that.
0: That makes a lot of sense because to me, and I always bring this up because I love talking about how Canadian I am, but like, it's weird in the US when you have the payer system, it's always like, remember that the stakeholders are multiple. And it sounds like you've done a very good job of, how do you make sure the stakeholder who has the perk strings is it going to loosen them but then also be deploying them in the best interest of the true stakeholder or you know the receiver of care right so like that to me is always an, a, an another level challenge that is is perhaps the most challenge, the, the most difficult one the most tricky to untie when it comes to the healthcare market right is like lining those up, especially if you're a a mission-driven company and you're you're genuine with your desire to achieve those mission results, right? It's like, okay, remember, I have to take this thing and I have to deliver it for them and their I O I that they demand, but I also have to make sure that we're actually satisfying our mission, right? And you came in, I think it's great that you came in initially customer-focused because you never lost sight of that then in that case, right? It's like, in a way, coming in with the mistake of like, okay, customer is our primary client ended up being like something that is in the DNA of the company. So your your stakeholder, your care receiver remains
2: a primary client as well, right? Would you say that's true? Or I don't know, like, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Really being member driven was a value that we didn't articulate in the early days. But that guided everything. And and one of the things I actually spend, you know, a lot of time thinking about now with over a hundred employees and so many new joiners every week um, is how we maintain that. And that's where, you know, about a year ago we went through the process of actually codifying what are some of the values that, you know, we um that that helped us initially be successful early on. And it was really exactly as you described, the recognition that Our first and primary customer is always going to be the members that we're actually trying to impact. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of laid down commitment. Um, to the mission to help 100 million people overcome their substance addiction as being that sort of foundational core value that we're going to back, uh, go back to. And then every sort of decision we make further down the line, such as, you know, business model, what actually provides the most amount of value back to our members, does us having skin in the game do that? We believe it did um, as we continue mm-hmm. to scale. And, you know, other business decisions over time as well goes back to that, you know, fundamental core value. So um, I do think that as you start to scale and you're a mission-driven company, really codifying your decision-making framework and how that mission um, helps to guide that when you as a founder aren't in the room, when decisions are being made is is incredibly important.
0: Especially with healthcare, I always wonder, as a founder, how much do you think about large structural shifts and changes and trying to encourage those to happen and how much do you just focus on what do we do within the frameworks that exist and how do we just kind of deal with that as it as it is as as opposed to trying to change it right what's the balance there and and do you ever think about
2: those large structural changes we definitely spend a lot of time thinking about it um and up until relatively recently our sort of viewpoint has, has really been that We're a very small fish in a very large pond, so it's going to always end up being the latter. It's what policy decision is likely... And then let's just figure out how we work within that framework. I do think that there has actually been sort of this growing overall coalition of, you know, virtual care and telehealth and digital health companies um, over the past 18 months that have actually benefited from some of the relaxing in regulations as it applies to state licensing. So one of the things that actually led to some of the, you know, tremendous growth we've seen actually over the last 18 months was the fact that it became possible for you know 100% virtual programs like quit genius to actually exist in areas such as opioid use disorder so previously mm-hmm. to prescribe a controlled substance like suboxone which we know is a life saving treatment and a core part of our program you needed to have an in person appointment with uh, a patient um, and then after that the, you know that could happen virtually that was relaxed, and you know the, the thinking was that oh, there's going to be such widespread abuse, and you're just going to have all these addicts and junkies off the street, kind of figuring out ways of getting access to controlled substances. None of that really happened. There's no data whatsoever to back that up, and it, in fact, it really helped to actually remove some of the barriers that existed for accessing care for people with a opioid use disorder. So there's a lot of evidence that um, you know telehealth is a great you know force multiplier for good, and we should actually figure out a way of making permanent some of the changes that actually happen we're still in this limbo stage frankly but we've been a lot more active as Mm -hmm. a startup ourselves in lobbying for some of the changes that we think are going to be overall impactful to you know patients with an addiction so we're doing more of that now it comes with the caveat that we've also got to plan on the back end for if regulations change how do we interface with um you know existing providers to provide a backup solution as well but i think that'll be a really sad day because you know it, it they're, they're sort of, you know, will very much survive and will be fine. But the result is fewer people are going to be able to easily access telehealth solutions. And we know that without access to care, the outcomes are just going to be worse and the costs are going to continue to escalate.
0: Okay, Jordan, that was our chat with Yusuf. Another one of the Jordan collection of interesting startup finds. It's a growing catalog, right? Yeah, what
1: can I say? I just I, I mean... I pick them, and I know how to pick them. Oh, and you
0: pick all the winners.
1: Yeah, I'm a winner picker. I was really happy, because I feel like it's been a while since I got to cover Quit Genius, and they've just, like, grown so much, and they're in so many different verticals. I feel like I was covering them at the very beginning, and I kind of had a feeling, right? We have these, like, three doctors, and they know what they're talking about on the science side, but their idea to go direct to consumer, I just had this feeling of, like... I don't know how many addicts you're going to get to pay to quit doing this thing they're addicted to, right?
0: Which ended up they didn't do that, right? And that ended up not working for them. So you were right about that. They had to go to the payers and get the payers to pay for it. Because as myself, a frequent addict, (laughs) I'm not paying to do that. In fact, one of the things I'm addicted to is paying specifically to indulge my addictions. Yeah,
1: paying for the, the thing you're addicted to and or in your case addicted to just paying for things
0: yes yes exactly uh we didn't really get into that on the podcast which i think is for the best but i like to include it in every episode <laughs> yeah so it's again. well known now well documented what's funny about this one is you know when we were talking about it i remembered this is some this is some insider information for you TechCrunch readers i remembered when you slacked me about this and we were like oh what do you think like like, probably at the outset. And we're like, what do you think about this? Like, they're doing CBT remotely. And I was like, I don't think there's the good science in doing CBT remotely. I think you need an in-care provider for that. Because it was early and it was weird at the time. It was not yeah. really the usual thing. And I was like, it sounds irresponsible. Just make sure that it you cross all your T's and you like went back and they had the study, they had the clinical study. I remember. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty impressive. Like normally you don't have that kind of thing at that stage. right?
1: So the interesting thing I think about CBT is yeah, like you need a practitioner, right? like you need someone to kind of like run the system cause it is so formulaic, but a bunch of it is homework. So if you think about it, it actually is like perfect for a virtual application. And I just think that, you know, they really tapped into something. And it wasn't the only smoking cessation thing that I was pitched that had to do with CBT, but it was clearly the one that, where they had the right path and strategy, even with the direct to consumer thing kind of messed up. I think the idea to do all that early research was so important and the path less traveled by, right? Like the more difficult journey, but they it was the right call ultimately.
0: Yeah, great conversation. A lot of questions remain for like, what happens next in regulation? But in another episode where we talked about US healthcare, and I got so angry inside, just seething with rage. But, you know, that's my lot in life. Go <laughs> oh, Canada.
1: Did you, you did mention Canada? In this episode, of course right? I did. Of course. Come okay, on. Okay, good, good.
0: Uh, anyways, <laughs> please go and leave uh, feedback for us on our iTunes thing in the reviews. When you give us five stars, leave us a good review. We'll read that. And then also, you can give us direct feedback on our listener survey that's right a listener survey because we care about you we want to hear about you we want to hear about what you think of the show what you want to hear more of in the show and you can fill that out it's only a couple minutes of your time at bitly that's bit.ly slash found listener survey give us your thoughts again five-star reviews also great we'll be back we'll see you again bye Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited by Grace Mendenhall. And Maggie Stamitz is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Yusuf shirwani co-founder and CEO at Quit Genius. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com/found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.